So I was drinking. Don't care. Ask the next question. Shut up. <laughs> User error 75. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And we've got a bunch more hashtag ask error questions for you. And remember that you can send us those on Twitter or in the Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram group or at error.show slash contact. Just use the hashtag AskError and ask us questions about anything. It can be Linux and FAST or tech or life of the universe and everything. Just whatever you like. And we'll select some of the best ones. So let's start with this one. What do you owe to upstreams? So in Ubuntu's case, Debian. In Elementary OS's case, Ubuntu. Dan, what do you owe Ubuntu and Debian? I mean, I guess that's more of a question for Ubuntu and Debian, right? But I think that we try to provide value back to them and not just be consumers. Like we report issues back up into Ubuntu or provide patches or um, try to have an ongoing conversation so that our usage of their work also makes Ubuntu better and that we're not just like selfishly hoarding improvements downstream. So I, I think that probably the simplest answer is to give back like we use kind of our development as a bit of their R&D. Um, but I don't know, Alan, what do you think we owe you guys? So I, I was thinking about this, and when Joe introduced it as, you know, for Ubuntu, that's Debian. I think that's an oversimplistic view of it, because Ubuntu consumes software not just from Debian. Like, we're not, we don't just import the whole archive of Debian and then rebuild it and then stick a stamp on it and say that's Ubuntu. That isn't what happens. There's the software comes from other places as well. And so there's a diverse set of places and lots of different people. So the way we interact with Debian is different from the way we interact with other upstream software vendors. But if you want to talk about Debian specifically, we can. And one of the first things I would say is people come to us and say, hey, we'd really like our software in Ubuntu. And, you know, we explain to them, well, it is possible you can create a package and put it in the Ubuntu archive. But actually, we'd really rather you did it in Debian. Like we would, we push people upstream to Debian who are software developers who want to get something in the Ubuntu archive, some library or piece of software they want to get in there. Because getting it in Debian means we will get it the next time we do a sync. So you will get it in Ubuntu eventually. But also we know that by putting it in Debian, everyone else who bases off of Debian benefits as well. So. You know, it's, you could argue, you know, we're pushing work upstream towards Debian, but someone somewhere has got to do the work to package that thing. And so more people benefit by putting it in Debian than just putting it in Ubuntu. So that, like, that's just one example. There's tons of others, but that, that's how I'd start. Well, what do you owe the kernel, for example? So we have developers who work on the kernel and I know. Uh, it's we're not a huge company. We don't have a huge number of developers working on all of these different components. But we have, you know, a team of kernel developers. They're not. It's not an insignificant number of people who work on stuff, and they contribute patches upstream to the kernel. So just like any other company, you know, you fix things that your customers or devices that you're responsible for. You fix the bugs or you implement features, and then you send that stuff upstream. 
Like we we don't want to carry patches in Ubuntu. We don't want to have a whole load of Ubuntu specific stuff in Ubuntu. But sometimes you just can't get it upstream. And if it's not accepted upstream, then we have to maintain it. And so we have to have kernel engineers who maintain those patches in Ubuntu. But we'd rather send stuff upstream. And similarly for like even simple things like bug reports, when a user files a bug in Launchpad because that's their first port of call. If they run Ubuntu bug, it goes into Launchpad. We'll often say, well, that's actually a bug in the upstream package. You know, if it is a package that we just consume from Debian and we'll say, could you please file it upstream? You know, sometimes it's just a boilerplate, almost robotic piece of text that goes in a comment that just says, you know, we really appreciate you filing a bug here, but actually, we can't fix this thing. It needs fixing upstream. And so we encourage people to file bugs upstream. And that can be frustrating for users because it's like, you know, they just want their webcam working or whatever. And they file a bug in Launchpad and we're like, well, that's not actually us. It might be the cheese developers or it might be the kernel developers or USB subsystem or something. And so the user then has to go and go through the faff of filing a bug upstream as well. And if you've got an awful bug tracker like Debian does, then it's even more painful. Um, so we try and make it easy and try and contribute those things upstream. It doesn't always work out. And people can always point to examples where upstream communication could be better. But we try. I can't help but feel that you two have dodged this question. You haven't answered what you owe to upstreams. You've answered what you give to them yeah because that's what i believe we owe them like what do you what do you think we owe them nothing nothing i think that you owe them nothing that's what free software is about it's you there is no obligation you can take that software and do what you want with it as long as you comply with the license you don't owe them anything you are a good FOSS citizen if you give back to upstream but i think that Technically speaking, nothing is owed. That's the point. We want to be good open source citizens. We don't want to be minimum effort, you know, someone who goes and fetches the tarballs and then builds it in a silo and then publishes it for their users. And there are people who do that. And there are people who are downstream of us who consume Ubuntu. And I'm not talking about elementary. People who consume Ubuntu and never send us anything. Never, you know, no bug reports, no patches, nothing. And... That can be incredibly frustrating, especially if they've discovered something and they fix it for their users and they never tell us and we don't even find out about it. Do they owe you that, though? I think so. To be a good open source citizen, absolutely. I mean, there's nothing we can do if they don't. You know, we might call them out on it or contact them and say, how can we improve this relationship? And both of those things have happened in the last 18 months or so. Because we're, we're all creating a commons of work, of, of code and documentation and assets. We're all working together on this. No man did this on their own. No person created the whole thing. You're all building on the shoulders of giants. And it's supremely arrogant to just think you don't have the responsibility to contribute back. Yeah, I think there's, there's probably like two different levels of obligation, right? Like legal obligation, no. The license pretty clearly states that there's not really any legal obligation. But I think like as a social obligation that Alan's right, that it does come off a little bit um, maybe arrogant or unappreciative or um, I think that there is a pretty clear benefit for people to contribute 
into upstreams and and once you do it you realize like how much it actually benefits you as a downstream to maintain a good relationship with your upstream and we have a couple of of downstreams people can who consume um some forks of our software or like um zubuntu maintains a fork of our icons and when our downstreams um, like Zubuntu contribute back upstream that they're not only helping us, they're helping themselves to not have to maintain like such a large divergent fork of something, right? And, and so I think that maybe um, O is not necessarily the right word, but I think that it's it's good for people who are using free software to see that contributing upstream is in everyone's benefit, including their own. I think maybe... Joe, your misanthropic tendencies are uh, steering you towards the thought that I that that maybe we don't owe anyone anything. We're, I think, we come from the position that we're working together on something. We're all creating this body of work, and no one person is creating their own silo. Um, and if they do, they it won't be reciprocated. Like if you if you don't help us, we're not going to help you. It's as simple as that. Well, yeah. There's a symbiotic relationship, essentially, between you and Upstream. Yeah, like, for example, for us, um, we don't really directly consume um, the GNOME shell or, like, we only have, I think, a couple of GNOME apps that ship in elementary OS, but we do consume things like GLib and GTK and um, soon Flatpak and, and other technologies that are in the GNOME ecosystem. So it benefits us to be involved in things like Guadec and to be contributing to the discussion in that area and helping to make GNOME better because we are going to inevitably use a lot of these same technologies to make our platform. And if we don't have any say in that process, that it can really disturb like our development goals. So I think that it's not only like our social obligation to contribute back to the things that we're using free of charge, but it's also in our interest and it's in everybody's interest, I think, for for us as a downstream to work with them as an upstream. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that you shouldn't contribute to upstream and help them out where possible. All I'm saying is just from a real technical, legal point of view, there is nothing owed. But I do agree that... um, well, with what Dan said, that there's there's two ways to look at it. There's the the legal way, and then there's the kind of social obligation. And I do think that there is a social obligation. Um, so I don't want to be seen as completely misanthropic. <laughs> Not completely, but but there are people in the community who are like that and who will consume your work and build something that other people will see as better, or you know, your thing improved in some way. And then they won't get involved at all. And that can be incredibly frustrating because they, they clearly have a set of users who like that thing. So, you know, it's valuable. It's seen as valuable, but feedback doesn't come back. And so it's difficult for uh, us as an upstream to make decisions if we don't know what downstreams are planning to do with our stuff. Um, it, it just makes it difficult, and I, I'd rather we all, you know, got along a bit better. Should all drugs be legalized? So I'm going to say that I probably have a more conservative viewpoint on this one because Murica. And uh, I'm going to say that I think 
that the consumption of all drugs should be legalized, but the production of drugs should probably more or less stay about where it is, or at least about where it's heading in the States. I think that like marijuana legalization is pretty much decided upon as being generally a thing that we need to do everywhere. But for some of the um, more... Uh, dangerous uh, drugs where you have to actually worry about overdosing and things. And I, I think that we're about right on there and that we could probably more heavily regulate things where there's danger of overdosing, like maybe alcohol isn't quite regulated enough. I know that's going to be really unpopular because I love beer, but if you really think about it objectively, like why maybe it should be a little bit harder to just drink as many beers as you want when you go out. I don't know what we can do about that. But it seems like that if we're thinking just about like societal impact, that legalizing all consumption would probably be good, but maybe like restricting production in some ways of certain things is also good. Leave it up to the cartels to distribute it, eh? That's working out pretty well right now. I'm in a mixed mind about this because I don't have direct experience of much of it. And so I think I would rather if my children went to a festival, I would rather if there were controlled substances that they wanted to consume, that they could get them from somewhere safe. And that it was, you know, there was a limit to the amount that they could purchase or that they were, you know, guaranteed safety um, in the contents of whatever it was. And there were safe places that they could experience stuff so that, you know, they don't end up jumping off a building or something, you know. So I feel like some of the drugs that we consume probably should be made legal. I don't, I'm not convinced everything should, but I, the problem is I don't know where to draw the line and I, I'm not sure if it's right to say some should and some shouldn't, because if you go down the road of saying they should be legal, why should some not? Like, it makes total sense if if you're going to have dispensaries that, you know, can dish this stuff out and it's well controlled and it's, you know, legal and people are able to get hold of it cleanly and consume it cleanly and safely, then why does that not apply to all drugs all the way through, you know, to heroin and crack and meth and and so on. Well, my answer to this question is yes, asterisk. I think that all drugs should be legal, should be regulated. It should be like going and buying alcohol now. If I go and buy a bottle of cider, I know that that is 4.5% alcohol or 5% or whatever. I know exactly what I'm buying because it is tightly regulated and taxed as well. So I think that all drugs should be the same way. However, the asterisk I think that smoking of any description should be outlawed because if you take cocaine, ecstasy, heroin, whatever, and you um, don't smoke it, then you are only affecting yourself. Obviously, then you can say there's a societal impact and people's behavior or whatever, but smoking directly affects others around you much more so than people who smoke tend to realize. You know, if you live in flats, for example, then that smoke goes up and affects the people above you, depending on the construction of the building. If it's old enough, then it will. My friend literally had to move house because of that. The people downstairs were smoking all the time and there was nothing he could do to stop them. And so he just had to move. 
I think that if you did this and legalized all drugs, then you would have to crack down on bad behavior that's a result of drugs. So, for example, driving while on drugs or antisocial behavior, I think should be very strictly penalized because I think you should have the freedom to do whatever drugs that you want, but that freedom does not extend to being a dickhead about it and being loud and violent or whatever. So it just seems pretty logical to me that you would do this. And I, I don't know, I just, I can't really fathom any arguments against it. Right. And I, and I feel like the worry that some people have is that it will get out of control and everyone will be driving around uh, off their heads because suddenly they can, as if everyone drives around off their heads because they can get hold of beer. Yeah, well, my um, local petrol station sells beer, funnily enough, so right. you could literally drive there, and uh, they sell spirits and everything. Yeah, but they don't sell it by the glass. No. Right. So it's in a sealed bottle, you put it in your car, and you drive home, and then you drink it, right? It's not like you're buying it from a bar and then climbing into your car and putting it in the cup holder and driving down the road with a straw, drinking, you know... Tia Maria and Coke or whatever you're... Is that your tipple, is it? Yeah, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I suddenly couldn't think of any cocktails, and Tia Maria and Coke was the only one that came to mind. Weird. I feel like, after a while, it would self-regulate, and people would use it in moderation, in generally, mostly, but you would get the exceptions. You know, there's always the person who gets Larry drunk in a pub, and there's always the people who can't handle certain kinds of drugs, and whether that's you know drink or heavier there are some people who can't cope with it and so those people will always be there like and there's not a lot you could do about that um other than like you say crack down on them and crack down on antisocial behavior so i i feel it will self-regulate and it won't be like mad max 3 but the reality is i don't think it will happen in my lifetime simply because there are far too many people who for whatever reason, believe that it is the absolute devil and the worst thing that could possibly happen to legalize these drugs. I do feel like that there's a significant number of people that would argue that people get drunk and drive their cars frequently, right? So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that like saying that that wouldn't happen if other kinds of drugs became legal is necessarily a good argument. I'm certain it would happen, but you know, who knows what the frequency of it would be, I guess. Yeah, I'm not saying it wouldn't happen. I'm saying I think that once everyone calmed down a little bit, it would happen just the same amount. Like, it would just be a, an alternative. It wouldn't be driving drunk. It would be driving under the influence of drugs, right? Both of which are bad. I'm sure we all agree. But I don't think it would be suddenly an epidemic because there were new additional substances to put inside your body and then jump in a car. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm certain it would it would probably stay about the same amount, right? People who were, right. would go out drunk driving would now go out heroin driving. Right. Would you drive on heroin? I feel, <laughs> I feel like you wouldn't drive much on heroin. You'd be surprised. Some people, I think, manage to take a lot of heroin and function in society. It's not the stereotype of take heroin and then just flake out for several hours. I've never done heroin myself, but it always seems like that's how it's depicted is that you just, you know, you do heroin and then you're just stuck for however long. Yeah, well, I've worked with someone who turned out to be a heroin addict. He was getting pretty thin and withdrawn and stuff. And then it turned out, yeah, he was addicted to heroin, but he was still doing his job fine. So, you know, I think people can function with it. One thing that we haven't mentioned is education. You know, I think that that is crucial to this. If you are going to legalize all drugs, then you have to educate people on the realities of 
what's going on with them. And, you know, that is one example there. Most people think that if you take heroin or similar downer drugs, you know, opiates or whatever, opioids, you are just completely zonked out or whatever. But that the reality is that, well, with the opioid e- epidemic in, in America and increasingly so here in the UK, there are a lot of people who function day to day and you wouldn't even necessarily know they were basically addicted to pretty strong drugs. And, you know, without that education, people can't make the choices for themselves properly because you need to, you need to be informed to make the choices. Right. And I think it's there's a cultural difference as well. Like if you look at the alcohol consumption across different countries in Europe um, and you know, other countries beyond, it's very different. Like the way people consume alcohol in Finland is very different from the way people in the UK consume it. Like, and you can trace back why the UK, you know, has this culture of binge drinking because of the opening hours and, you know, the limits on what you could buy. And it's very different from, you know, cafe culture that you get in a lot of European cities. Um, so, and I, and I feel like the consumption of, drugs would probably differ from country to country and i wonder if legalizing it like everywhere all at the same time would probably result in very different reactions in different countries because culturally the people behave differently when they consume you know um, mind-altering substances would you ever subscribe to a paywalled podcast i suppose first of all do you subscribe to any paywalled podcasts i did a long time ago um one audio that i can't even remember what it was um but i did and it was just an audio program and you needed a username and password and you gave them a little bit of money and you 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 put the rss feed and you got prompted for username and password and that was it but i i honestly can't remember what that was and another one was um video screencast stuff um and it was specifically for the Mac because I wanted to see how other people did it and how, you know, what the quality of the content was. So I subscribed for a little while so I could consume the content and just see what the difference between the free shows and the paid shows were. Um, but this is when I was on, I had a Mac at the time and an iPhone. And so I could, it's very easy and integrated to subscribe in the podcast app on, on iTunes, I guess it was. So yeah, I did. Uh, for a while but interestingly the person who i subscribed to has changed their model and where previously they had like one show every other week and on alternate weeks it was a free show and then a paid show uh they've now moved completely to subscription so there are no free shows they just do trailers that are five minutes long and it just says right you need to pay for the full show if you want to see the whole thing and they link you to the subscription page so i i presume that's successful for them and it's it's probably more successful than hoping people subscribe to your patreon and more successful than hoping people don't turn on an ad blocker because you know exactly how many customers you've got because they're paying you every month um so it's an interesting model um but <laughs> that's the only time i've ever done it it was a long time ago yeah, I'd have to say because of the way media consumption has changed and the way we think of how things are purchased nowadays, I don't know that I would necessarily want to pay for a single podcast. But if I could do like a subscription, like if tomorrow Apple announced that like, hey, now we have Apple podcast subscription for $10 a month and all the podcasts on your ad free. Then I'd be like, okay, all right. Like I'll pay $10 to make sure that none of my podcasts have ads in them and that like 
the people who make them get paid. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, the, the time when I did it, there weren't so many podcasts out there. Now there's an absolute dearth of podcasts and I, I can't get through them all. So I never get to the point where I think, Oh God, I've got no content. I better go and buy some. Um, I, you know, I, I just, there's, there's enough in there that I will be able to listen to stuff until the heat death of the universe. I think. Yeah. That's the problem for me that there's just so much content now that why would I need to pay for it? I'll just skip the ads on the ones that have adverts and the ones that don't. Great. I, I just don't see the the need, really. There are some that I suppose I would maybe pay for, but there's too much content generally in the world to pay for things unnecessarily. What if it was super cheap, like, uh, you know, $1 per episode, and they did an episode a week? That's like 50 quid a, 50 quid a year. That's not a huge amount of money for 25, 50 hours worth of content. That's not bad at all. You know, I have no idea whether that would be more cost effective or not. Like thinking about the amount of podcasts that I listen to, I would probably end up paying more money with a $10 subscription some months. But I think I'd still rather do that for some reason, just because it feels predictable. Like... There's something about like paying piecemeal that now feels like, oh, like it's like paying per text message, right? You're like, oh God, like what if I wanted to use more? Now I've spent, you know, tons of money this month on podcasts. I don't know, even though that's probably something that'll never come up. And realistically, like, do I listen to 10 podcasts episodes in a month? Maybe not. Maybe I don't. Maybe I only listen to six, but I don't know. For some reason, the subscription model just feels like so much more natural in this time now. How many domain names do you own? So I only currently own one domain. Because the company owns the rest, presumably. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, those aren't my domains. Yeah, the company owns all the elementary ones, and I have no idea how many of those there are. Probably lots. But yeah, I only own my own one personal domain. I think I at one point um, bought one for my mom, but then she like stopped using that website and so I didn't renew it. But uh, yeah, I just got my one personal one right now. I have six, but one is expiring soon and I'm going to get rid of it, I think. I don't know. It's my old Linux Luddites domain. I need to sort out a um, another place to host the the old site, but it's been two or three years now, I think, since we stopped doing that podcast. So I don't think anyone really cares anymore. It's on archive.org. So I might just stop paying for it. Because I used to have tons of just stupid fucking domains. It's just, uh, I can't even repeat some of them. (laughs) Just because, I don't know, I thought it'd be funny to buy it. But I've just weeded it down and down and down to ones that I actually need and use. And I just let them go now. It's, It's hard. There was one that I paid for for 10 years and never did anything proper with it. I tried a few different things and eventually I just thought, I'm not paying for this anymore. I calculated like how much it was and it was too much. So I've got lots of domains that I have had in the past, like loads of projects that I've, you know, killed. I used to have a domain where I basically invented Twitter, um, which <laughs> many years ago, I created this website where people could um, send a text message and it would appear in a blog. And every text message you sent was a new entry in the blog, much like a timeline with tweets in it. Um, and that's basically how Twitter started. Um, so I invented Twitter many years before Twitter 
was a thing. Uh, and there was this guy who used to use, um, use it when he was traveling and he would use it to write his, his journal of, uh, what he was up to. He would just send texts every, every few hours or so. And it would appear on this little, this little website. Uh, but that one, uh, I threw away. I've had loads of those ideas where I've started a domain and then thrown it away. But the ones that I've kept, obviously I've got my own popey.com, which I've had for ages. Um, I've got one for a podcast that I keep threatening to start and I never do. And I keep doing prep for it. And then I think, oh God, this is a lot of work. And then I put it on the back burner and I keep thinking about coming back to it, but I never, I never do. And I've had that for about 10 years. Yeah. And then you started telecast with Popey and thought, this is much fucking easier than doing a proper podcast. <laughs> yeah. This is way easier, but yeah. Uh, I've got Ubuntu.social, which is a Mastodon instance and. I've got one called have the buttons moved back yet.com, <laughs> which I, I registered when everyone started uh, complaining about the buttons moving from the right hand side of the window to the left hand side of the window in unity. I registered a single use domain that just said no. When it, if you went to it, it said have the buttons moved back yet. No. And when we switched from unity to gnome and the buttons moved back to the right hand side i had to replace that with yes <laughs> and a <laughs> screenshot of 1710 with gnome with all the buttons on the right hand side so yeah that's completely pointless now i've had that for like 7 8 years or so when microsoft launched windows 7 they did this thing called house party um and for some reason it it, it Every three years or so, or every couple of years, the promo video for it, which is super awkward and awful, keeps being like regurgitated on YouTube and people share it around social media again and go, hey, here's your reminder that Microsoft made this really awkward Windows 7 house party video. And uh, I registered houseparty.cx in order to do an equally like awful one for the next Ubuntu release party, but we never got around to it. We were going to do one that was even more awkward than the Microsoft one, but we never got around to it. So, yeah, I think that's all of them. I've probably only got four that I actually use, though. Your buttons one reminds me of have they remade back to the future yet dot com. Huh. Which just says, no, thank fuck. But knowing <laughs> Hollywood, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> yeah, Dan, you've got one. Uh, doesn't, um, is Linux about choice redirect to something or do you redirect to that or something? So Cassidy bot is Linux about dot XYZ. That's it. And that redirects to like a whole bunch of like random is Linux about things. But he also has like some of his own little pages there. And um, I started a single page about um, the like status icons, system tray, whatever you want to call it, uh, as like a in preparation for a, a talk that I want to give it at Linux App Summit. But uh, so Cassidy owns that one though. I don't actually own that one. I just had it up on GitHub Pages, and he was like, "Hey, I'm going to buy your URLs." I said, "Okay." What's your favorite and least favorite meme? Poppy, I know you're really into this. So what's your favorite and least favorite? Oh, jeez. <laughs> what? Why did you ask me this? Like, what What are you expecting me to say right now? Are you, are you expecting me to say, oh, the one with the little bear that's running? Or the one with the little girl who turns and like, or the one with the big text at the top that says, you know, happy birthday or something? Like, what? I, I don't understand the question. All right. Do you know what a meme is? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you 
must have a favourite and least favourite one. Like, I don't know, Heckin' Chonkers or whatever, the big fat cat. The thing about memes is they're, they're, they're transient. Like, if you, if you go to, um, know your meme, you'll see, you know, details about each meme and their, their origin story, derivation, and, you know, they use things like Google Trends to see, you know, how many people are searching for that thing over time. And, if you'd have asked me this question like some years ago, then I would have been equally bemused. But if you forced me to have an answer, then it would be something. And then a couple of years later, it would be something else. It's just, it's like memes are just this super transient thing. All right. So what's your least favorite and favorite right now? Oh my God. Uh, it's, it's just... <laughs> Do you have any ones that you would like regularly use? Maybe not, maybe not, let's not use the word favorite, but like, are you a user of memes? And if you are, which ones do you use the most or least? Are you ganging up on me to like <laughs> get an answer out of me for this thing? Cause it's such bullshit. Well, I, th- I think favorite's an awful way to look at it. Like I don't have a favorite meme. What am I 12 years old? Right. But I do use memes, right? You're a meme user. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. Come on. No, I, no, I'm not. I'm a GIF user. I'll use animated GIFs all day, every day. Go and scroll through the Ubuntu Twitter account and you'll see them. But, um, no, I, 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 I don't use memes. I, I, hmm. I think there's <laughs> one I have used. There you go. There's one I've used, but I would put that as both my favorite and my least favorite. And that's the stupid kid with his arms in the air going, you know, thing, all the things. That's the only one I've ever used. So there you go. That is a lie, but okay, fair enough. What is a lie? What, that I've never used any other memes? Yeah. Find them. What, like the, the animated GIFs, a lot of those are memes. Uh, well, I don't see them as that. I, I, I very much see memes as the, the thing with white embossed text at the top of the bottom and a picture in the middle or multiple pictures of the rock, like turning around in a car or whatever. Yeah, these kind of things are memes, but just an animated GIF of a kid like chuckling or whatever is not right okay so when i offered to explain what a meme is and you scoffed at that um it turns out you don't know what one is <laughs> because uh well first of all uh, fun fact or fun pub quiz question who invented the word meme uh, you're gonna say richard dawkins i am gonna say richard dawkins yes well done <laughs> you win the uh, round of drinks all right patronizing dad <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite meme. <laughs> I find the evolution of the word meme to be fascinating and very meta because he originally coined the term as a unit of cultural information that can uh, evolve. And then it evolved into just all sorts of stupid shit on the internet. And then it evolved into specifically pictures with white text on them. But that isn't really what a meme is to me i i think of it more as the middle phase of that just stupid shit like recurring in jokes on the internet i suppose so what, let me rephrase the question what, what's your favorite stupid in joke on the internet then so i think what would help illustrate this is if you were to tell me what your favorite meme and least favorite meme are joe because then that would give me some context because i'm clearly a fuckwit who doesn't know what memes are Evidently. Right. Okay. So my favorite meme is Taylor Swift generally as a meme, whether that is telegram stickers or her songs or whatever, just, just the, the idea of her just annoying people and stuff. So that 
you know, much like sort of the Rick Rolling thing was once, just the idea of Taylor Swift. That's my favorite. My least favorite is referring to things as porn that are not porn. So, for example, like Unix porn, where it's like good looking, um, I don't know, desktops or food porn or stuff like that. That to me boils my fucking blood. And I cannot explain why. Thank you for giving me that in. Uh, I will look forward to using the word porn liberally in every conversation with you, Joe. Uh, Why do I do these things to myself? (laughs) Oh, dear. I'm having a hard time coming up with a least favorite meme, but I feel like if this qualifies that my most favorite meme is probably the accidentally a thing. I feel like I do that. I say that all the time or I use that all the time or we use it like in Slack or wherever where it's like, oh, you accidentally a semicolon or like even to Karen, like, oh, I accidentally the whatever at the grocery store. Like, I don't know why that's so funny to me, but just the idea of like leaving out the thing from the sentence that you're referring to, you forgetting about it. Yeah, leaving out the verb, I accidentally the whole thing, I think was the original on that one. Yeah, it just, I don't know why that's so funny to me, but <laughs> that's the one I use. Okay, I'll, I'll concede I have one. Uh, it's, uh, white guy blinking, I think is, uh, because when I see something, uh, weird, I will often do white guy blinking to myself in my, in whatever room I'm sat in. I'll like recoil slightly and blink. And because I'm white, I can do it. And then I will then. <laughs> paste white guy blinking in whatever channel that alarming thing appeared so that's probably the gif that i've posted the most is white guy blinking if i had a favorite let's let's just pretend i have a favorite and say it's that i had no idea that's what it was called but i know exactly what you mean as soon as you said it so yes that's a fun one i'm not going to give you the satisfaction of having not a favorite one (laughs) (laughs) although i do have one yeah all right i'll give it to you um it's the one where there's two guys in an office and there's like four frames and one of them shouts at the other one and then one of them leaves and they're pointing at each other and shouting. I don't know what it's called. It looks like it's from like Storage Wars or something like that. I don't know what the hell it's from. I cannot believe we've been talking for five minutes about pictures of things on the internet. It's really weird. I thought your least favorite was the Untergang uh, one. The um, I can't remember what the English for it is. You know, with Hitler telling everyone to leave apart from oh from the film downfall that's what it is in english i think what that is is an example of one that's past its prime i think it's not that it's not my favorite it's just that as i said with the trends it's just way past its peak yeah that hasn't been around in a while i don't think i haven't seen one of those in a minute i saw a hilarious one about british politics recently and i generally don't like them but that was hilarious he pasted it to me and i refused to watch it (laughs) Because I was like, no, I'm not watching that because it will not be funny. It was hilarious. You would have laughed. And I stand by what I said to you, which was miserable bastard. Also, if I'm going to go down that road, that uh, probably Spanish guy with no teeth laughing on a chat show, that one I don't like either. Yeah, I think any of those like long form video ones are just not as funny. I just realized, no, my favorite meme is not owning a TV. (laughs) I I was actually white guy blinking just then, (laughs) but you didn't see it. (laughs) 